If you will, take your Bibles and join me in Mark chapter 8 this morning. Mark chapter 8. The verses will not be on the screen this morning, or at least the entire text. Uh, they will pop up as we individually address them. So if you have your Bible, turn there or on your device. Get your device out. Use your Bible out. If you don't have either one, then just look on with someone beside you. Now let me set the scene real quick. Last week we read the story of Jesus feeding the 4,000, not the 5,000, a totally different story with a different group of people. The feeding of the 5,000 took place with a Jewish audience last week. We see Jesus uh, repeating this miracle, except this time it was with 4,000, and it was with Gentiles. And so we're coming off the heels of this miracle that Jesus has performed as we enter into verse 11. And it says, And the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat, and went to the other side. Verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the eleven of the Pharisees. And the leaven of Herod. They began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand... How many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, twelve. And the seven for the four thousand. And how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, seven. And he said to them, do you not understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people. But they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. This morning I want to talk to you that Jesus is point blank with the, with, that Jesus is point blank with the spiritually blind and patient with the spiritually slow. Jesus is point blank with the spiritually blind, and he is patient with the spiritually slow. 
Which category are you in this morning? So let's talk about the first point of this morning's sermon. Jesus is point blank with the spiritually blind. Now who are the spiritually blind in this text? Well, the spiritually blind are no doubt the Pharisees. And and according to Mark's uh, rendering of this story, in Matthew 16, the Sadducees were here as well. So we really have Jesus... Here's what's interesting. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were enemies of each other, and yet they were both enemies of Jesus, and so yet so the enemies have joined together against their greater enemy. And so they come out because they want to have not a conversation with Jesus. They want to have an argument with Jesus. Right? What does verse 11 say? The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him. So here's point number one about the spiritually blind. Spiritually blind people, and how do you know if, if someone is spiritually blind? They like to argue with Jesus. They're not there to learn from Jesus. They're simply there to argue with Jesus. we got a lot of people who go to church who like to do nothing but argue about Jesus. The church is full of blind people. And when I mean blind, I mean blind to the spiritual reality of salvation. Now, look at the verse. Look back at verse 11. We're going to look at some words, some specific words, that are going to help us to understand the nature of being spiritually blind. First, the word came. It says the Pharisees came. This, this word came is, carries the idea of military rank. So if you watched yesterday uh, any of the 9-11 celebrations, you, you see, especially within our military, when our military is presenting themselves, they will often pre- come out in rank and file with the, the highest rank leading out, followed by the lesser rank. And so that's what we have, that's the idea of the picture we have here when the Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming out to argue with Jesus. They are coming out in rank and file. And when 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 we mean they are coming, we mean they all are coming out to see Him. And not just to see Him, but to argue with Him. Now that word argue is an interesting word. Because this word argue means that they are attempting to gain control of... Jesus. Again, they're not coming out to converse with Jesus or to have a conversation with Jesus or to even argue points with Jesus. They are coming out to argue with Jesus in such a way and such a, and to such a degree as to take control of him. Does that sound like somebody else that we've read about in the Bible? Anybody remember a conversation that was had in Matthew chapter 4? <laughs> Luke chapter 4, where Satan came to Jesus in the wilderness to tempt him. What was Satan trying to do to gain control of Jesus? So here, here's what we have with the spiritually blind. The spiritually blind 
are argumentative in a way that they are argumentative just like Satan is. Satan has been doing this since Genesis 3. Did God really say? If someone is wanting, if, if someone is constantly wanting to argue, then there is a definite possibility they are not interesting, interested in learning. I don't know if you've got people like that in your life, people that you're trying to share the gospel with, or people that you're trying to have spiritual conversations, and it's nothing more than an argument. Because you know that in the conversation, that person is not interested in learning anything or at least listening to your side of the conversation. They are simply having this discussion because they want to take control of you and what you believe. I would just say to you that those need to be very short conversations and conversations that you probably need to quickly turn and walk away from. So what Jesus did, does he not? He doesn't play with their games. He's not going to sit there and let them continue on with this foolishness. Jesus knows their heart. He knows what they're after. He knows that they, ha they have no intention of actually listening. They only want to take control. Spiritually blind people are argumentative, but... Spiritually blind people are also arrogant. They're arrogant. Notice uh, what it says, that they were seeking a sign from heaven. Now Jesus doesn't give them a sign, right? He says, I'm not giving you a sign. Now Matthew's a little... Matthew's interesting in that he's got a little piece of this story that Mark doesn't tell us about. So when you read Matthew's account, Matthew says that he does not give them a sign except for the sign of Jonah. What does that mean, right? What's the sign of Jonah? Well, what happened to Jonah? The Bible says Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days before God spit him out. What does Jesus say about the resurrection? Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so shall the Son of Man be. So even these arrogant, pompous, argumentative Pharisees to Jesus says, you know what? You're not getting any more signs from me, but for the sign of Jonah that is yet to come. And that's going to be a sign that everybody's going to see. But what about this seeking of a sign that they are, that they are after? What's, what, what is that all about? And why doesn't Jesus give them a sign? Why doesn't he just go ahead and do a sign from heaven? Because both Jesus and the Pharisees knew that false prophets trafficked in the sensational. The more miraculous sign would only begin to undermine Jesus' credibility. Jesus knew that they, they weren't even really after a sign. They just wanted Jesus to do something miraculous so they could once again accuse him of being a false prophet. And we don't have time to go into that, but, all, but that is 
all throughout the Old Testament teaching. So Jesus is not going to give in to that. They've already called him what? Satan. Right? Have they not? They said, He's be- that's Beelzebub. That's the devil. So Jesus is not going to give in again to that foolishness, to their arrogance. And also, if Jesus would have yielded to their passion for this sensational display, he would have made faith impossible for them. Now think about that for a moment. Jesus gives in to this. He is actually making it impossible for them to accept who he was. Let let me ask you a question. Do you accept Jesus because you see him do a miracle? It's not the basis of salvation. I don't believe in Jesus because I see him do a miracle. I believe in Jesus, right? Because the Spirit of God, not a sign from God, convinces me that he is the Son of God. You see, they're attempting to gain by observational means what can only be gained by faith and trust. Faith that depends on proof is not faith, but veiled doubt. So when you got people that say, you know what, if God could just do a miracle, if He could just show me something, then I would believe. Then I would believe. We do this as Christians in our praying for our lost family and friends and people that we care about. I did this with my, uh, with my own mother. I, I prayed, gosh, what, 20-something years ago now for a miracle. And I thought, you know what, if, if God would give us this miracle... This would bring my mom to faith. And it didn't. God didn't give the miracle. Why? Because He wanted to bring my mom to faith. And you don't come to faith through miracles. You come to faith through the Spirit. John 6 says that it's the Spirit that brings us to salvation. But it also says that they were continually seeking this sign. But can I tell you something? Jesus had already given them a sign way back. John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Watch this. This is going to come up on the screen. Now watch. Everybody knows John 3, 16, right? This is the story. This is the beginning of John 3, 16. It says, now there was a man of the what? Pharisees named Nicodemus. What is he? A ruler of the Jews. So this is just not any... Remember I told you about rank? They came out by rank. uh, Nicodemus would have been one of the first dudes out because he's a top-ranking Pharisee. Now watch this. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Teacher or Rabbi, we know... Watch. We know that you are a teacher come from God. (laughs) Watch this. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. You know why Jesus says you ain't getting no more signs? Bad English, but good preaching. 
You're not getting any more signs because you done had one. You're not getting any more signs because you already know. This is, again, this is nothing more than a trap or a game to try to disprove who I am, not to prove who I am. I love the fact that when we read Genesis 1, where God could have just emphatically um, just wiped out any arguments against evolution or any other type of argument that God doesn't exist or that God didn't create the, the universe... He does. He doesn't. God could have. He could have took the book of Genesis and laid out a beautiful argument against all arguments that ever would come against him in Genesis. But he doesn't. Why? Because God's not into arguing. He's just into stating the fact. And he did that in Genesis chapter one, verse one, when he said, "In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth." That's it. That's a statement of fact. Why, it's a statement that you must take by faith. But let me tell you something. It don't take a whole lot of faith to believe that. Right? I mean, look around. Do any kind of study of science. Go anywhere on this planet outside of even this state, and you'll realize, hey, there's no way this is all a cosmic accident. There's, there's no way that somebody is not behind this. There's no way that, that there is a world without a God. True unbelief, true spiritually blind people are arrogant. They're arrogant. Unbelievers will demand a sign, but even if God gives it to them, They'll still reject it. They'll still reject it. How about, how about the man? You remember Lazarus and the, and, and the rich man? They die, and the rich man goes to hell, and what does he say? Hey, Father Abraham, send Lazarus back from the dead, and my brothers who have not believed, they will believe and not come to this awful place. And hell is real, and people do go there, contrary to modern popular belief. What did Abraham say? He said, I'm not sending anybody back from the dead because they still wouldn't believe. Right? Isn't that what he said? He says, they have the Scriptures and the prophets. And yet Jesus would rise from the dead. Over 500 people witnessed His resurrection history records that Rome put it under wraps and gave hush money to guards to lie about his resurrection. And yet, no matter how much evidence we put forward to the resurrection today, the only way men and women and boys and girls are ever going to believe in Jesus Christ, that He is God in the flesh, crucified for the sins of uh, of men and women, of boys and girls, of sinners, raised from the dead on the third day. The only reason and the only way we believe that is by faith through the work of God's Spirit in our life, helping it to us to believe. No one comes to the Father unless 
The Spirit draws them. One other quick statement about this whole incident here is that the word test, that word test is only used four times in the Bible. Once here, three other times. It's used two more times of the Pharisees and it's used once of Satan himself, what Satan did in the wilderness. They're acting like Satan. They're acting arrogant. Last, the spiritually blind will be abandoned. This is the bad news of this story. Notice what it says in 12 and 13. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sigh? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, pay close attention this morning, if you will. This word, side, is a rare word. It only occurs one time in the entire Bible. Listen, and in all of Greek writings that we know of, this word is so rare that it's only used 30 times in all of Greek literature. It is not an expression of anger or indignation so much as dismay or despair. Here's what it means. It describes a person who finds themselves pushed to the limit of faithfulness. The antagonism of the Pharisees parallels the antagonism of the Israelites to Moses in the wilderness. And Jesus groaning in dismay seems to reflect God's disgust with the bent and the recalcitrant Israelites. And then it says that Jesus leaves. He leaves. And we see that word and we think, oh, he leaves. Not, not that. I mean, that's sad. Jesus leaves them. But even in that, we don't get the full weight of this word. Jesus sighs. He's, he's, he's pushed to the limits of faithfulness. Listen, they are... Could I say it this way? Jesus has had it up to here with them. Do y'all understand that language? Jesus has had it up to here. You say, well, Jesus, uh-uh, not my Jesus. Oh, yeah. With unbelievers, there is a time and place where Jesus will say, no more. No more. He'll sigh. He, he's at the, he is at the end of his limit of faithfulness. And this word leaving is a strong word. It is often used in the Bible when it comes to divorce. He left them behind using a verb also, that also carried the idea of forsaking or abandoning. I want to make one quick statement before we move on to the last point of the sermon. We have a God that is gracious beyond our understanding. He is long-suffering beyond our understanding. But, but let me say something to you.
There is a danger in being here this morning. I, don't, I haven't talked about this in a long time, but, but I feel like it needs to be brought back. And I, and I feel like maybe in some ways I have failed us in not mentioning this more. To hear and be encountered by Jesus is glorious and it is dangerous. The Puritans had the best way to explain this. They said the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. You see, every time you come to church and Jesus speaks to you, and Jesus speaks to your heart, and Jesus tells you again and again, I love you, I died for you, I'm the Savior, I'm the satisfier of your soul. Why why don't you leave and walk away from all of your other means of satisfaction? That that guy's not going to give it, that girl's not going to give it, that job's not going to give it, that uh, all those degrees aren't going to give it, that's not going to give it, this is not going to give it. Everywhere you turn, every door you knock on trying to find satisfaction Jesus is reminds us Sunday after Sunday after Sunday that is not where you're going to find it it's not the door that you knock on it's the door that I'm knocking on I'm knocking on your door I'm saying I am the only one who can save and satisfy that massive gigantic hole that's in your life that you cannot feel I'm it and this is what he's saying. Go, go message after message after message after message and reject it and reject it and reject it. And it's really not that God is divorcing us. It is that we are divorcing Him. Why? Because we continue to layer on hardness after hardness after hardness. The voice gets fainter and fainter and fainter. The pull gets less and less and less until there's no pull at all. And really what I think Jesus is saying here to them, I don't think He's totally abandoned these Pharisees, but here's because when He says, you want another sign... But I'm not going to give you one except the sign of Jonah. He, he's letting them in on a clue. He's like, look, <laughs> you got one more opportunity here, my friend. You've got one more shot. Why? Because though I'm not going to give you a sign today, God the Father, the covenant God, the God of your Old Testament is going to leave you one more sign. He is going to raise me from the dead. And that is going to be your sign that I am the Son of God. And you better believe on that. If not, you're done. And some of us this morning, I, I'm, I'm not, I, you, you, you know me, I've got over 13 years of a track record here. Here, I'm not a high-pressure salvation salesperson. I don't believe that's the way people come into the faith, is they get high-pressured. But sometimes we need to be reminded that God speaks and He speaks, and sometimes we just think, well, you know what, I'll ignore Him today, and I'll wait some other time down the road, and then I will believe, and then I will listen. But listen... Listen, my friend, you don't know if that day is going to come and you don't know if that voice is going to come again. That's the reality. And if yesterday doesn't remind us all of that fact, then we've got nothing else that can help us to remember that.
All week long I have watched over and over and over again stories about 9-11. And do you, rem- do you know what I heard almost every person say about 9-11, 2001, that Tuesday? It was a beautiful day. It was a beautiful day. I mean, there ha- it couldn't have been a better day on planet Earth than that day. And yet, some th- what was it, 3,000 plus souls slipped the bonds of this earth into eternity? And yesterday, as I was watching their names being called out, at one point it got, I, you know, I was glad Brandy was out of the room because I, I got a little red-eyed. I got a little emotional. And you know why? Because this is what I kept seeing. 32, 34, 48, 41, 46, 27, 28, And I realized that those were people in the prime of their life and not one of them got up that morning thinking, you know what? Today is it for me. Not one of them. Not one of them. Listen. You don't know if that voice will come again and you don't know if your physical body will give you another opportunity to hear that voice again. But I want to tell you something that's true. If you take your last breath without Jesus, you will spend the rest of your real life without Jesus. And that's the truth. And the only people that get to go to heaven are those who have left their spiritual blindness and by faith trusted that Jesus is the only way to God. He's the only way of salvation. Which leads me to my last point, which I think I can do fairly quickly. Jesus is patient with his disciples. Oh my goodness. Anybody need that this morning? Any disciples need to hear, hey, I'm patient with all you slow people. Because we're slow. (laughs) I mean, we we are so slow. I got to tell you this little story here. Because I think this this is us. All right, y'all ready? There was a man who went to the bank because he wanted some money. The teller asked him to make out a check. But the man would not do it. So the teller said, if you won't sign the check, I can't give you the money. So the man went across the street to the other bank where the same conversation took place. But after this exchange, the teller reached across the counter, took him by, uh, by the ears, and banged his head three times on the counter. After which the man took out a pen and calmly signed the check. The man then returned to the first bank and said, they gave me the money across the street. And and the teller said, well, how did that happen? And he said, they explained it to me, answered the man. Some of y'all feel like you need to bang some people's heads in order to get them to understand. And guess what? Some other people are looking at you thinking, I want to bang their head so they can understand. And how many of us have had to have our heads banged 
several times until we understood. Why? The spiritually slow need repetition. Listen, Mark, if you go back and read Mark 6, 30 through Mark 7, 37, and then you read Mark 8, 1 through uh, 8, 26, you almost see the, the repeat of, uh, of the same events. Why is Jesus having to repeat these events? Because the disciples are so, so slow to learn. I mean, they're in the boat, right? They got in the boat and they said, We only bought one loaf of bread. What are we going to do? We're going to starve. We only have one loaf. What are we going to do? Number one, they had just seen Jesus have this conversation with the Pharisees that's pretty intense. You would think they would be talking about that conversation. Man, Jesus, he kind of laid it out there to him, didn't he? I mean, I mean, he was like point blank. I mean, he, I mean, he just told it like it was. No, they get in the boat and they're looking around. It's like, what's for lunch? Well, we only got one loaf. We only got one loaf. What are we going to do with one loaf? We're going to starve out here in this boat with one loaf. We only have one loaf. And then Jesus is, gets in the boat and uh, he hears the conversation. And he says, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. (laughs) Now notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't take a big deep sigh with them. He he is not at the point of faith. at the point where his faithfulness is ending. Jesus shows us that he is patient. But let me say something to you. Do not mistake his patience as a part, as a pat on the back, that you're good. Jesus does not condemn us for our slowness, but he patiently confronts our slowness. Verse 17, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that there is no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? You see, they were concerned over the lack of bread, and Jesus was concerned about their lack of faith. Can I ask you a question? In the course of a few weeks, if you had seen a man take five loaves and feed 5,000, and then take seven loaves and feed 4,000, how in the world could he not pull off one loaf for 12 boys? Even if they got big appetites. How in the world can he not pull that off? Jesus doesn't treat them like a Pharisee. He doesn't abandon them. He is aware of their discussion. And he doesn't know... Well, he's aware of their discussion because he knows everything. Jesus is not attacking them. 
He is helping them to apprehend or to understand. The Greek, Greek word there for understand means to put the pieces of the puzzle together and make sense of its parts. Isn't that a beautiful picture of a good teacher, of a great Savior? Someone who says, hey, look, boys, <laughs> I, I mean, what's it going to take? And Jesus says, Let, let's go back over the lesson one more time, right? And that's what he does. He goes back over the lesson. How many, how many loaves for the 5,000? Five. How many loaves for the 4,000? Seven. He's patient with them. Go to the next slide, Jason. I want you to write this down as we close. This is a verse. This is just like, like if you're slow to learn, you're a Christian, you're a disciple, but you're so much like the disciples, like you're just like, I mean, Jesus is like having to bang over and over and over and over like your head so you'll understand. Like he's having to repeat stuff over and over and over and over again then this is, this is the verse that you need to, the two verses you need to pray. Ephesians 1, 18 and 19. I promise you, if you make this a, a constant prayer in your life, you will find the help that you need. Having the eyes, this is Paul's prayer, uh, part of uh, a prayer of Paul's. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glory inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable, immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Lord, you know I don't see well. And you know I don't remember well. I need you to help me to see the hope that you've called me to. I need you to help me to see the riches of your glorious inheritance. I need to see the immeasurable greatness of your power towards us who believe. Listen, some of us need to do what they did in the Old Testament. Some of us need Ebenezer's in our life. Ebenezer was a, is an is a Old Testament teaching of when God would do something great in the life of His, of his people, they would set up a monument uh, to, to, to celebrate God's working. Matter of fact, when they crossed over the Jordan River going into the promised land, the, Joshua told them to go back, take 12 stones out of, the, out of the riverbed, and they went up on a place called Mount Gilgal. And on Mount Gilgal, they, they took these stones and they made this, this remembrance, this Ebenezer uh, to the Lord. And often through the book of Joshua, if you go back and read Joshua, you will find them going back to Gilgal at times of victory, at times of defeat, at all different times in their life, at least five different occasions, they go back 
to Gilgal. Why? Because here's what they knew. It was important not to forget what God had done. Why? Because if you forget what God has done, there is no going forward. Why? Because, listen, on your best day, you better not forget what God has done. Because it wasn't you who got it done. On your worst day, you better not forget what God has done. One more reference to 9-11, and I'm done with my references to 9-11. Why did, why did they build this monument there at 9-11, those two pools where water constantly flows into? Why, why did they build this museum and this monument to 9-11? Because they want us to never forget what happened. Why? Because if we forget what, what happened, what happened, we will be doomed to repeat that in the future. Listen, in the days ahead as we talk about spiritual disciplines in our Sunday morning small groups, we're going to get to a spiritual discipline called journaling. And you're going to go, ha, journaling, that's girl stuff. That's what guys say. Really, we all probably say journaling. Who wants to do that? It's a waste of time. Journaling is nothing more than a book where you record your Ebenezer's so that you can go back and look on them as the days go by and the times where you forget all that God has done. You know what? You, you might need to go back and read last week's Ebenezer to get through today. Listen, they got in a boat moments after 4,000 people got fed with seven loaves of bread and they were wondering how in the world they were going to eat off one loaf. Don't tell me you can't forget quickly. You need Ebenezer to remind you, hey, <laughs> he is faithful. He is patient. He is good. He will come through. But let me finish by saying this. These 12 guys, this is probably the thing that I've taken away from this, this whole section of Scripture. Jesus says to them in, in 821, He says to them, Do you not yet understand? And I think those words, yet understand, are great. Jesus says, have you not yet put the pieces of the puzzle together? Then you read Matthew's gospel, and Matthew adds a verse that, that Mark doesn't. Matthew says that they did understand. Jesus explained it to them, and they understood. You see, again, that yet understand, Jesus says to us, have you not yet put the pieces of the puzzle together? Why? Because Jesus knows because of who He is and because of His patience with us that one day we will understand. And that's why He tells this final story of the man who healed, who, whom He healed in a very weird way by spitting on His eyes. And that leads me to the, the, this 
very last statement of the morning. Why does Jesus tell a story of a two-part miracle? Anybody believe that Jesus can't heal a blind person on the first try? Then why in the world does he do it in twofold? Is this new, some type of new healing ministry that Jesus is developing? No, because Jesus is actually using the healing to teach us a very important spiritual truth. The spiritually slow need repeated touches from Jesus. Amen? You know what Jesus is telling those slow-to-see disciples? Here's what you need. You're going to need, for the rest of your life here on this earth, you're going to need me to keep on touching you again and again and again so that you can see more and more and more and more. Hey, you're slow to grow. What do you need? You just need Jesus to keep touching you. But how does Jesus continue to touch us? How did, how, did Je- how did Jesus touch this man? Some people brought the man to Jesus. How are you going to be repeatedly touched by Jesus? Is that every day you've got to keep bringing yourself to Jesus. Jesus, here I am. Slow. Don't see too well. Sometimes don't see good at all. I need you to touch me again today. Lord, I need, to, I need you to help me to see more today. We are starting this week a book together as a church from our youth all the way up to our adults called Spiritual Disciplines of Godly Living. I invite you to come at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and join us with it. We got a book and a study guide right down front. Even if you don't normally come, I'd ask you to give the next 13 weeks of your life on Sunday mornings between 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock, or 10 and 10.45, as we journey through this book together. Spiritual disciplines have no magic in and of themselves, but listen to me, church. Spiritual disciplines put us in a place where Jesus can repeatedly touch us. We read His Bible. We commit ourselves to pray. We commit ourselves to giving. We commit ourselves to serving. We commit ourselves to silence and solitude, to journaling, to all the different disciplines that this book talks about out of the Bible. All we do is we set ourselves in the place and we say, Jesus, touch me. But listen, Jesus can't touch us if we don't put ourselves in a place where he can touch us. And guess what? We need touches from him all the time. Let me leave you with this thought. Moses waited 40 years in Midian before the Lord gave him his great calling. Many years passed between David's anointing as king and his assuming the throne. Paul waited 14 years between his conversion and his, and his entrance into ministry. In times without number, Holy Scripture reminds us that Christ's likeness is not built in a day, a week, or a year, or even a decade. Gradual growth is not an excuse for sluggish progress, but an explanation. Gradual growth is not a reason to put your hands behind your head 
have put your feet up on the table. It's a realization which helps us to move forward knowing that our path is not swift, but slow and steady. It is not immediate, but intermittent. Gradual growth reminds us that our progress comes because of the continued touch of Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, only two kinds of people in the room this morning. The people who have never been touched by you. The people who find themselves in the same place that the Pharisees were. Unbelieving. Arrogant. Resistant. Demanding stuff from you in order to believe. And yet you've given us every sign that we possibly need in order to believe. The sign of a cross, that our debt has been paid for, and the sign of an empty tomb, signifying your power over sin and death. And so, Father, my prayer for those who find themselves in the unbelieving group this morning, that they would put away all of their questions. Not that you're afraid of questions. You love for us to come to question, come to you with questions when they are questions seeking to learn, not seeking to gain control. So, Father, I pray for those this morning that are in that position, that they would, right there where they are, by the help of your Spirit, say, I'm done with not believing. And today, Father, I, I believe that you sent your son, Jesus, that he died for my sins because I'm a sinner. And he rose to give me new life. And I trust in that, in that alone, to be saved from my sin and to be saved to be your child. And then, Father, for the other group, those of us that have already made our confession of faith, who have come to see, though yet we still don't see a lot of things clearly. We confess our slowness, and we confess that many of us have used our slowness as a reason to continue in our sin. Instead of knowing that we're slow... And saying, slowness is no excuse. I must continually take myself to Jesus for a fresh touch. Because our lives are in need of your repeated touch in order to see you so that we can become like you. So Father, in these moments ahead, do what only you can do for our good and your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing one more song together this morning.